And so one of the biggest issues of our times is identity, who we are, where we come from, you know, what we're about, where we're going. And I'll try to address some of those for myself, but also for us in New Zealand. So a lot of people have similar issues. And so I'm not only trying to say things about myself, I'm trying to make some wider points about New Zealand. And we've talked about COVID and the economy and justice. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do share it with your friends. I don't have the benefits of a huge marketing budget, so the only way this podcast is going to grow, and I'm going to keep being able to get decent guests, is for you to share this podcast. Thanks for the support so far. This month, I spoke to Simon Bridges. He's the former leader of the National Party and currently represents Tauranga. He's been quite outspoken about crime in New Zealand lately and the police's response to crime. We spoke about that as well as a number of other topics, including his rise in politics at the same time as Jacinda Ardern, his treatment by the media as leader of the opposition, National's recent struggles, and finally his book, National Identity, Confessions of an Outsider. Thanks as always for listening. I hope you enjoy it. So just to crack things off, if you can just introduce yourself a little bit in terms of your background prior to getting into politics. That's a great opening for me. I feel like I should be on a leather couch lying down. I could tell you many things. But um, <laughs> no, I, I uh, well, I grew up in West Auckland. Uh, so I'm a, a Westie uh, originally. Obviously, I've been in Tauranga here uh, for 20 years, basically, exactly, actually. And my background is, yeah, I mean, it's pretty... I would say basically normal to the extent that anyone's normal. Mum, dad, five older siblings, and then went to university. I had lots of other ideas, but my dad really wanted me to be a lawyer. He thought that there were no poor lawyers and that would be a good thing to, good, solid, <laughs> secure thing to do. So I did law and politics, and then I worked as a lawyer for seven or so years in Auckland in a big commercial firm and then I, I wanted to do prosecuting so I moved to Tauranga to do that and um, and enjoyed that. It's very satisfying work. J- jury trials basically, jury trial after jury trial, serious crime work with police and, and yes, say in court. But I'd always been, I suppose, political and a political activist in the National Party and I had the opportunity, which is a long story in itself, but to step up and try and become an MP and you know who knows whether it, it in hindsight it always looks easy but it wasn't but became an MP a fresh-faced new MP at 32 and have been an MP now a member of parliament for Tauranga for uh, you know what is it now um, 2008 uh, shows my math 13 years or something yeah <laughs> Well, at least you haven't quite cracked 50 then based on that maths. <laughs> no, although I, I literally this morning I've had an invitation to a 50th, so I'm starting to get those from mates. I'm five and a half years away, plenty of time, and 50 is the new 30, so it's all good. Yeah, that's what they say, yeah. Before we sort of um, go any further, I'm just curious as to what, apart from your dad pushing you towards being a lawyer, what was it about being a Crown Prosecutor that particularly interested you? 
the, the glory. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I originally wanted to be a the conductor of a symphony orchestra, and I had delusions. I think that's a sort of megalomaniac type thing to stand at the front of a orchestra with bassoonists and timpanists and violinists and so on. And then I wanted to be in media. I was a you know, 12, 13-year-old listening to talk back, and I loved that. And I applied, actually, to get into a communications degree in Auckland at AUT. I didn't get into that, actually, in the sixth form. What do they call it now? Year 12. So I kept at school. I was good at school. I was always going to go to university at some level. I was quite academically inclined. And I suppose law did lend itself to my skills. I mean, I was never going to be a scientist or something. I was English, history, economics, these sort of things that I liked. I was good at debating and speeches. And I've always enjoyed things that are in the, the public domain, if you like. So politics, it has its, it's not, it's got some differences, but it's got its similarities to the courtroom and universities, these things that are institutions um, that matter. And so yeah, I wanted to be part of that. And yeah, I did well at that at university. I was, I was debating, I won competitions for courtroom etiquette and witness examination they call it and, and mooting and these sort of things so it, it was kind of always where I wanted to go commercial law firms are good and in it's interesting work you don't go to court though fundamentally more and more it's just papers or online frankly today without paper and I, I didn't have an uncle or a, a grandma who was a lawyer or anything and, and was sort of in the scene and so in Auckland back then to get into the, the firm that did the jury trials, you really had to know someone, you had to be kind of, you know, as I say, have a, have a mum, dad, uncle, granddad, something like that. I didn't, but I did see an advert in the Northern Law News, which is like the law newspaper for a, a young junior prosecutor who'd, who'd get to do jury trials. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. And all my friends, my flatmates, my colleagues that I was mad, I was take, took quite a significant pay cut. But it was a good move, very interesting work. Worked hard at that, as I say, for seven or so years. So then you're, um, you're with National, and one of my memories back in the day when I was early at uni is I used to watch Breakfast every morning, and you used to have you and Jacinda sitting side by side yeah. having your little um, arguments about whatever the day's debate was. I'm quite curious because you both, I don't know the exact details in terms of timing and stuff, but you guys both sort of followed similar career trajectories in terms of your time in parliament i know on the surface everyone would argue that jacinda's had the more successful on the surface career but who do you think's actually achieved more during their time in government without trying to blow your own trumpet no, no, i mean i think um i think by definition jacinda because she's been prime minister and that's the apex the the pinnacle of politics and indeed governing of our country and she is doing that so there's no doubt if you look at it from 2017 onwards it has to be her that said you know, I'm very proud of what you know I've done I hope I can say that with some humility but you know look the, the earlier years whilst she was you know she would have sat there in 2015-16 saying this is annoying I've been in opposition all this time and of course you know I um was fortunate that John Key and others saw something in me and I rose, you know, quite rapidly from, you know, backbench MP to a committee chair to a minister outside of a cabinet to a cabinet minister to a very senior cabinet minister. And I'm very proud of a bunch of things done in energy and climate change and transport and infrastructure. There's a lot of bricks and mortar 
projects I could point to and say, you know, I was led on that, we we oversaw that, you know, and through little things as Member of Parliament uh, locally, where, you know, sponsored laws and, and so on. So it's a lot to be proud of. And, and I think without kind of descending into amateur psychoanalysis, I'm a big believer that you've got to run your own race. And, you know, actually a lot of people who in the end don't turn out to be that successful are too busy when they're running that race looking over their shoulder or looking ahead at the guy or girl next to them who's maybe got better sneakers on or you know do do and that's not a good way to go it's your own race where you're seeking to do things for their intrinsic value and merit and uh, i'm not saying i've got that perfectly but but done that perfectly but I think the longer I live, I try and uh, you run my own race and on my own terms. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, Prime Minister Ardern uh, would like to think she's doing the same. One of the comments that we've had is on the surface, you'd think that National and Labour are worst enemies. But from what I understand behind the scenes, that you guys actually work quite a bit together. What is your relationship like with Jacinda in particular? Because you guys had that period when you guys were both representatives for your party. Well, I don't, think we're, I don't think we're close, right? I mean, you do see someone like her and she'd see me, but given that we've been now members of parliament at the same time for 13 years, came in together. In a funny sort of way, I know Jacinda Ardern and some of her colleagues, Grant Robertson, Chris Hipkins, and as a, in a funny sort of way, pretty well. Like you say, in those early years, I sat next to Jacinda as we'd gently have a go at each other on and off the screen <laughs> and have a chat about what's going on. And I suppose we're competitors and so I feel I know, yeah, professionally as well as possibly anyone in the opposition. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. As leader of the opposition, when I was and she was prime minister, as she still is, of course, again, we have quite a bit to do with each other. And you're right, the political spectrum in New Zealand's not that wide. I wouldn't want to say there are no differences, though. There certainly are. Um, we come from different starting points on a bunch of things. But that doesn't stop us working constructively. People see in the public the big stuff, you know, that that gets the TV or the controversy in Parliament or the squabble about this or that. But actually in select committees, and I'm on a select committee tomorrow, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work with Labour MPs, Green MPs, ACT MPs, by national and vice versa, that is very constructive. Tomorrow, for example, we're working on an anti-terrorism law, uh, we're working on a digital harm law, you know, what some probably slightly incorrectly but call revenge porn. We're in near unanimity on these laws, it seems to me, and we're all just working to try and improve them. So a lot of that stuff would just never hit the headlines because it's not sexy in a media political sense. But there is quite a bit of that. And, you know, sometimes it's true for every MP, they get on and we get on better with XMP or YMP from another party better than some of our own colleagues. That's just the way it goes. I mean, it's good to hear that you guys do work together because the point of politics isn't just to fight the whole time, it's to actually get things achieved. And um, as you say, you do come from different sort of starting points and you're not going to agree on everything. But the only way that Parliament's actually going to work is if you guys are able to work together. I think that's right. And, um, and, and you know, look, Again, we get all philosophical about the sort of parliamentary system we have. It's a bit like we've been talking court. In court, we have an adversarial system. You know, defence lawyer, prosecuting lawyer, judge, referee in the middle, like a soccer game or something. And it's a contest. 
And the same is true in Parliament. That's the system we've got. We could have a less adversarial, more inquisitorial kind of, um, we all sit around in lounge chairs, lounge chairs. I can remember Winston Peters once <laughs> making this point and, and smoking cigars or something and drinking whiskeys <laughs> and chat things through. That, though, is not the system we have. And I, I personally like our system. I think it's got a lot of merit. The contest is transparent. It's open. And so I, I'm always, you know, given my experience as an opposition leader, I am always keen to make the point that I know a lot of New Zealanders despise, frankly, but that it's good to have a contest. It, it, it is a constitutionally important role for opposition to take it to the government because good governments are improved by strong oppositions pushing them on things if they've got good answers they will withstand that if they don't hopefully they'll they'll change and and improve so i just make that point because come by art is important and working together where that's appropriate is important but the contest also is and we shouldn't i don't think we should be squeamish about that i think there's perhaps a slightly juvenile if I dare I say it, view of that in New Zealand, that, oh, well, if they're squabbling or they're having an argument, that's terrible. No, actually, it's probably because it matters. It's probably because over centuries, our system has moved that way. And we had a parliament, if you go back to the UK originally, because people otherwise would kill themselves on their street. You know, it is a place of passion and dispute. And I don't know that that's actually a terrible, in fact, probably a good thing at a level. Albeit it can be taken too far and it can be kid stuff and all that. You do make a good point there. One of the problems is from the media perspective, all we see is potentially national disagreeing with stuff in the open. But of course, in the background, you're working a lot together. As you say, I think it is really important to challenge the government, even if they're doing a good job on something. And I would argue for the most part that they've handled COVID pretty well. I think it is your job to challenge them when things aren't going well. It comes across in the media as just attacking the government, but as opposition, I think that's your role. And to sort of elaborate into a question, I think sort of how did you find your time as leader of the opposition and how did you feel you were treated by the media when you were in as leader of the opposition? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And I think just to pick up on some of what you're saying before we get to that kind of crux of it, of course, a smart opposition knows when to shut up and has the luxury of picking its battles and so you know there will be times where actually it's not worth going on x y and z because the public think the government's going to do a job on that and actually they are we're just going to focus on b c and d and and there, there is that that's that's a judgment call i think the media were fair to me and national uh, and i wouldn't say otherwise i do think though what is true is there was more intense scrutiny of myself as leader of the opposition in the National Party in the period of 2017 to 2020 than any other opposition in living memory. And there's some very sort of simple reasons for that. One is that unlike any other opposition, we were very popular and we were big. And so we were hugely relevant. And both the right and the left, because there is a right and left in New Zealand media, for different reasons, thought they would focus and scrutinise us. From the Mike Hoskins of this world, there was a sense, well, you know, have you guys done enough? Are you good enough to inherit the mantle of John Key and Bill English and Stephen Joyce? And I always thought that was not, not unfair, but probably a wrong view of life because John Key and Stephen Joyce, etc., weren't John Key and Stephen Joyce as they're sort of held up today when they started. 
right? Actually, they learned and we can look back and say, oh, they were always these sort of great leaders. Well, that's not actually true. So so from the right, the media on the right, there was this kind of, we've got to put these guys to a bit of a um, test and just make sure they match up with our very high expectations of what the National Party is like. From the media on the left, there was a different view, which is these guys are actually too popular and we need to take them down a peg because there's a new government. Thank the Lord there is because we've been so sick of the smug, smarmy National Party for too long and it's time to take them down a peg. And so there was intense scrutiny on me because I think in truth, there was a view that if you take down the leader, which in hindsight was correct, you ruin the party for a time. You create all of these problems. And so columnist after columnist after columnist got into me in a way they haven't since, and I don't think they did even in the Labour years of opposition. And then there's also the way National played it, and I'm not going to say it was perfect, certainly wasn't, but I had a very clear view that we were at a counter-cyclical moment where my opportunity to be Prime Minister and lead New Zealand meant we had to go gonzo. We couldn't just sit back and kind of be statesmanly and relaxed. Actually, we had to really take it to the government because there's only been one government in you know the past few decades, actually. There's been a couple, I think, in New Zealand's history that's been defeated in three years. And so to do that required an aggressive, assertive approach that not everyone would like, but was the approach I decided to take. It might be different now or in three years' time, right? I mean, if you go back to John Key, when he became Prime Minister in 2008, with no disrespect to him, he just had to stand up and be competent because people were, enough New Zealanders were thoroughly sick of the Helen Clark government. They felt that they had been a bit in any state, it was time for a change, and so he just needed to be sort of standing and competent. That wasn't true in the 17 to 20 period. So. I'm not saying the media was biased, I'm not saying we got it all perfect, but there were particular factors about our size, our strength, that were sort of scrutiny on us that we haven't seen before or since, I don't think. One of the things I found quite frustrating is I noticed it was very clear in the media that a lot of the news representation of yourself wasn't positive. And then the moment that you left as leader of the opposition, it might have even been the next day or the next week, there was that really fluffy piece about you standing next to a yak or something like that and made you come across as like a really likable family man, whereas for the previous however long you'd sort of been ripped to shreds by the media. I think everyone loves a, you know, comeback story, if you like, or, you know, a sort of rags to riches. I like it too. I'm, it's great to get positive media and it's really nice. The joke, I think, is though that a lot of New Zealanders sadly fall for this stuff and a lot of people will come to you and say, oh, you're just so much better now. You, what have you done? You're just, nothing's changed, right? <laughs> it's entirely media construct and fabrication. If they decide they want to have it in for you and the camera's going to be close into your face to show your eye twitching because that's what they want to do rather than softer lens back a bit as they might with another media personality slash celebrity, <laughs> they have that power. And that's kind of the way it is. I think of 20 social media posts that were my top ones, if you like, in 2020. 13 or 14 of them were after I was leader, which again sort of shows, I suppose, yeah, just how things are when the pressure's off. So maybe some of it was me. Pressure's off, you're free to be me. But a lot of it was the way the media wanted to play it. I'm not complaining, it is what it is, but... 
I think we're naive if we think otherwise. Media have certain narratives, constructs, views they want to present things in, and that's just the way it rolls. I think um, National at the moment aren't in a particularly good place. It's kind of stating the obvious at the moment. I know there's all the stuff in front of the media, but the, the general gist that I get is just not a really popular place, which isn't ideal as the main opposition party. I even have someone who's quite interested in politics, and if you talk to them sort of three or four years ago, they probably would have been going towards the National Party, and now they're considering looking at other options. Do you think that it's just a bad phase that National's going through, or do you think there needs to be a major overhaul? Truth is, there's all sorts of things, and National hasn't done itself some favours in a bunch of areas, and you know, let's, let's acknowledge that. But no one would have won that election in 2020 for National, not John Key, not Barack Obama, because it was a year of COVID. There's a natural herd mentality that I'm not even knocking, right? It's probably right where people rush to safety and the incumbents. And I think basically, you know, with Donald Trump exception, which is, you know, a very interesting one, governments in power stayed in power in elections in 2020. And so that is sort of that. Having been decimated in a bad election, there's then a sort of a, it's almost like the seven stages of grief process you've got to go through, right? And that, that just takes time. And so I'm not here to make excuses, but I do think National's in a better position today than it was six months ago. It will be in a better position in another six months as it goes through that grieving process, if you like, works things out. I have no doubt, and I'm not just saying this to you, if you'd asked me a month or two ago, I would have said National, I probably wouldn't have said this, but if I was being honest with you, you know, you gave me some truth serum, I would have said National can't win the next election. I think we can win the next election. What you're seeing in public polls is that the shine is really coming off the government. People aren't yet saying, well, we're going to go to National off the back of that. And ACT has been a beneficiary of some of that and good for them. But I think you'll see that process continue. National needs to step up and make sure it's seen as a viable, competent, strong alternative. I think that will happen though. And I I think if we look forward, we're now towards the end of 2021, the end of 2022, it will be much more competitive. I'm not saying National definitely will win the next election, but I tell you, I just say it will definitely be competitive. And I think there's some prospect we could off the back. We've got stuff to do. I think one of the things we have to do is make sure we're focusing very clearly on what New Zealanders want us to. We've been engaging, I think, rightly in some big issues that, you know, I might, I would call cultural issues. Some would say cultural war issues, you know, issues of race and hate speech and these things. And, and that's been partly because that's where the government's been at when we haven't been talking about COVID. But I think as issues of the economy, health, education, housing, transport come to the fore, those kind of bricks and mortars issues, that that will play to national strengths. And as I say, we'll be much more competitive by the end of next year. It is really interesting hearing you say that and that um, only a couple of months ago, you probably would have said, I don't think we've got a chance of winning the election, even if you might not have said it in public. Mm. But um, do you think it's this lockdown in particular that's changed the narrative? Or is there more to it than that? I think it's part of it. There's definitely growing frustration with the COVID response. I'm with you. The first half, if you treat it like a rugby game, was good. And we could look smugly out on the rest of the world and say, isn't that amazing? We're safe. uh, Very few fatalities. Living normally. 
But what we've also seen alongside that has been a complacency from the government around vaccination and a bunch of other, the tracking, tracing stuff, you know, a variety of things where we're not where we could and should be to have fewer lockdowns in the future. I accept we should be in lockdown right now. But if the vaccination rate and so on were better, we could be in a different position over the next few months, whether we will or not, we'll see. So there's a frustration there. More importantly, though, the government, I suppose, has only focused on COVID, has been a bit complacent there. And there's a bunch of other things, whether it's the economy, whether it's a health system that's got a lot of issues, whether it's the education system with a lot of issues, whether it's increased crime, where the government just doesn't seem to have that basic ability to implement stuff. They're good at talking, they're good in the media, they win on empathy, all of these things that we think are important today. But it comes to actually getting basic crap done, like building a highway that a Tauranga needs to deal with congestion, dealing with overcrowded hospitals. The, the plans don't quite seem to be there. So those are um, th- 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 those are growing frustrations. One swallow doth not a summer make, I think Shakespeare said. I'm not saying National's there yet, and we've got a lot to do. But I am just saying to you that I think the shine is coming off. If the government can't get it together and start handling some of those basic things and implementing in some big stuff, housing, health, economy better, it will, by definition, make it the election in 2023 much more competitive. I know that there's plenty of things that you could talk about in terms of roading and housing and stuff, but one thing in particular that you've been quite outspoken about in recent times is the rise in gang violence and the response by the police. What do you think is the best way that we can tackle gang violence in New Zealand? Yeah, I think the first thing to say, and I promise I'll answer your question really squarely, but is that I'm not a nutcase, right? I totally accept that the causes of gang crime and criminality are very complex. There's a bunch of things going on. Some of it is racial, some of it is even possibly colonialism, and I I can tend to accept a bunch of those things as factors. And poverty that drives people into gangs. Definitely poverty, yes. You know, all, all of these things. Get all of that, right? But I don't think having said that, the answers are that complex. They may be hard to implement, and we've just talked about that when it comes to housing and so on, but I don't know the answers are. I think they are a combination of hard and soft, and you actually need both. But the problem with this government, from my perspective, you don't have to agree, but I think the perspective of many, the government and the police and the police commissioner, is that they have the cart before the horse. They want the soft stuff, the getting around, working with gangs, not treating this stuff too sort of seriously in terms of a hard approach. And that, to me, will never work. You're never going to turn around the Mongols of Tepuki or the Comancheros of Papamoa by sort of trying to get into hui and all of this while they're running with gangs, guns and meth, right? It's just not ultimately... What, what I think is required is say it's quite simple to state. It's a tough approach. It's treating gangs in many respects. Some people may blanch at this as, a, as a, an analogy, but like a cancer that you have to go at with quite hard to push it back, right? To disrupt with severe penalties and approach. Then though, I totally get and accept, and we can any party should try to do a better job of this, once they've been brought to justice for the significant problems uh, that are going on, 
you do need the rehabilitation, the mental health programs, the drug programs, the skills and training, and the reintegration programs. So we actually, when you know Jimmy of the Headhunters is out of prison, we're setting him up to succeed with maybe some skills and a job, maybe relocating them with better mental health programs in places like Tauranga where we both are and where the system is failing in that regard. That holistic sort of package is required. But I do think if you look at Aussie and when you've got escalating gang violence and crime and a real cancer in our midst, you do have to go out quite hard. And not to do that sort of gets, as I say, the cart before the horse. While I'm on a roll, just the only other thing I would say is one of the central problems of the government's current approach is if you don't do that, the problem continues to grow and you have quite perverse outcomes. And I'll give you one. I don't think most New Zealanders want to see gun police armed routinely, right? I don't. Absolutely. It's not the the country I want to live in. But the perversity of the government's softly, softly approaches, we are inching towards a situation where in the end, police are going to end up routinely armed because we sort of haven't been strong enough, early enough, in my view. And today, 70-something percent of police want to be armed routinely. Because in fairness to them, they're out there at the coalface and they see all the harm, they see the violence, they see the dangers with a, a multiplicity of guns and so on. So that's a real issue. If we continue on this way, with growing gangs, growing numbers of different kinds of gangs, significant increase in criminality like we haven't seen before in New Zealand. There'll be those issues with guns that will grow, with drugs. Something we haven't seen today, we've been blessed not to, but is increased corruption as it starts to become normalised and seeps into our society in a bunch of ways that we've seen in places like America. And, and I just hope we can get away from in New Zealand. It's not too late, but it does, I think, require that hard and soft approach. But the hard has to be quite hard, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's quite a fair point because I'm a big believer in the soft stuff from the addressing the causes. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about in terms of dealing with the gangs and the rehabilitation and stuff, that's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Jimmy that's in that gang, he's not in the gang because of something that happened in the last couple of years. He's in the gang because of something that probably happened 15 to 20 years ago. Like if you look at the Dunedin study, kids' outcomes are sort of determined in their first thousand days. So we really need to be addressing the causes. And I suspect that, as you say, it's a very complicated thing. It's not a simple answer, but poverty has got to be a big part of that. We could have a huge discussion about, you know, addressing those causes and that could be, you know, a two-hour conversation. But in terms of specifically the, the hard stuff, is there evidence from overseas or even in New Zealand that the hard stuff does work for addressing gang violence? Yes, and I gave a lecture uh, recently at um, the Canterbury School of Criminology. And in fact, you know, at Oxford, a component of my master's there was in criminal justice and what you know, some would call criminology. The problem with this area is you can end up arguing studies and, you know, you get 10 experts in this area in a room and they'll give you 10 different studies that say different things. But I believe and I think there is credible evidence to show that deterrence, both specifically for the offender, but also more broadly for those who are thinking about whether they go down this path, does work and in the end works better than the alternatives. You know, if I can put it this way, At at, at the very lowest, if you want to put the case in terrible terms, I would prefer to have 
criminals in jails. And I know it's a far from perfect response because jails are far from the ideal of want than have them on the streets creating more crime with more victims of crime. And so I, I think the deterrence does work specifically and more generally. But yeah, you've said it yourself and I agree, but you know, we could spend hours on it. The long-term answers are in education, welfare, jobs and economy. And what Bill English talked about is social investment, you know, getting in early, finding the triggers and the things that work to, you know, get people on a better trajectory. Because, yeah, I mean, was it um, one of those great Catholic priests from a million years ago that said, you know, give me the child till they're seven and, you know, I'll show you the man, the man or woman more properly. And I think there's definitely a deep truth in that. And that's, of course, what we should be doing. But that's, we're not going to solve that in a minute, unfortunately. And unfortunately, because no one solved it in a minute, you do need that deterrent stuff, as well as the rehabilitation, the reintegration programs and the like. I would actually be quite interested to see the research on that. I mean, I think there's, uh, I I used to be photocopying a few pages of criminal studies, but it's pretty simple. My old lecturer at Oxford, Professor uh, Andrew Ashworth, would say on what works in these hard cases, nothing, right? That's what he would say, nothing works. It's a very cynical view of life, though. My view is deterrence works less badly than all the rest. It's a bit like Churchill on democracy. It's the worst of all, apart from everything else, right? I mean, I'm sorry, if someone comes and firebombs a barber's in Gretton, as happened about a year ago in Tauranga, it was clearly gang-related, there's only one response that's appropriate, and that's significant deterrent approach. If you don't, in the end, other bad eggs will do that. So I, I think it's both, there's evidential, but it's also normative, if I can put it that way, because if you don't do that, what sort of signal are you sending? There is a just desserts component here. People need to see that someone's getting their just desserts for what they have done. So I think it's both evidential and, as I say, a values thing uh, in the end. From an overall perspective, I think it's good for it to be evidence-based because there is the danger of just responding to the emotional side. For example, if I lost a loved one to gang violence, my perspective is going to be a lot more harsh than someone who's had nothing to do with gang violence and just sees it from a distance. So there's definitely that emotional component, but uh, I think it's important that we address the evidence as opposed to getting too caught up in the emotions, but then at the same time, I can understand why people feel so strongly about certain things. I, if I agree with that, but, but I, I totally agree with that, but I tell you what, I've done, and we won't get into the details of this, but cases as a lawyer that have involved very significant criminality and where the whānau involved doesn't believe that the offence is uh, fair, they will on occasion take justice into their own hands. And so it does need to be acknowledging leniency and mercy and all of these things and person's personal circumstances sufficiently condign that it reflects societies and the individual's concerns, you know, condemnation, grievance, and sense of, you know, frankly, punitiveness as to what happened. Because otherwise, in the end, it doesn't work. Oh, look, I appreciate most people in New Zealand don't think about these things and don't probably accept that. It would be much better if we could live in a world where everyone just got along and everything was nice. But sadly, that's not the case always. In terms of your current role for National, can you just sort of tell people what that mostly involves? And then just to sort of make it a two-part question, what would be the most important thing that you would want to achieve? If there was one thing that you could achieve in government, what would it be? 
I think we talked about a good part of it, which is justice. And definitely criminal justice tends to be the one that gets the headlines. But these other big areas of justice, I think the civil justice system, you know, if you have a dispute over a property matter or with your bank or something, that's very flawed. Effectively, unless you're rich, it's very hard to get meaningful justice in New Zealand on those things. So we're very focused on that. The other very significant portfolio I have, of course, is Maori Crown Relations. And I I suppose it's like justice in that the immediate issues can tend to mask the big long-term ramifications. And I'm very focused on the long-term. My worry is, if we go down a path where we have Maori wards, we have different health systems, all of these things, we in the end are acting in a way... And I appreciate these things are really complicated, but in a way which is inconsistent with a modern, liberal, multicultural democracy. And so I don't want to be in dog whistle politics, as some on the, probably the left would say. This is not my gig. I, I don't want to be offensive. I'm Nati Miniapoto from the King Country. But I do think, you know, stuff that we do today has ramifications And we need to think those through in terms of the kind of society and ultimately democracy we want to live in. Yeah, I um, 100% agree on that. I think that you can try and address some of the unfairness and the inequality, but I do think that we do need to be one people. I was actually born in South Africa and we've seen from apartheid that having two laws for two people doesn't work. And I appreciate that Maori wards is not the same as apartheid, but I just do think it's a slippery slope and it's unhealthy to go and segregate people. And it creates, whether or not it's fair, it creates a sense of unfairness. You know, you look at, say, a successful Maori person who gets a scholarship and then a white person from a poor background who doesn't get a scholarship. You know, that's an example where people would feel that that's unjust and then resentment grows and it can potentially flip the other way where, you know, it grows the divide between people. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, these things are complicated and they're fraught, but we need to try and focus on actually in all of the things we've talked about, justice related and race relations related on the high goals of where we're trying to go, what sort of society we want and work backwards to that. And as you've said, with good evidence and so on, but sometimes these things are, um, yeah, they're, they're difficult issues. I appreciate Simon, we've taken a lot of your time, but just before you go, did you want to just briefly give a summary of your book, National Identity, Confessions of an Outsider? Yeah, well, look, it's out and in lockdown, it's a bit hard to get hold of, but can be ordered (laughs) online. I mean, basically, I wrote it because I could, I had some time and things I wanted to say. And I suppose a lot of it's just stories, you know, which I hope people recognise as good Kiwi stories and things that, you know, you say, not in every case, but yeah, that resonates with me. That's kind of my story as well, you know, whether it's about growing up Maori or, you know, what that means for me as a Kiwi, as a Westie masculinity, what it means to be a man in New Zealand, you know, how I fit in with it, all of these things. But I suppose, you know, if we stand back a bit, what I'm trying to do as well through these stories is say, you know what, this is why it's called national identity. We no longer live in caves. We no longer hunt on the savannah for antelope and so on in a, in a, in a world where we're either scared of being chased or we're chasing something ourselves for food. And so one of the biggest issues of our times is identity, who we are, where we come from know what we're about where we're going and I'll try to address some of those for myself so there's a self-help aspect to it but also for us New Zealanders so a lot of people have similar issues 
And I do think, you know, when you think about identity, it's not only that you, Steve, and me, we have our identities as people, but if you gather all those up in a country, we're just talking about South Africa, and that we're very different from New Zealand, but in New Zealand, we as a tribe also kind of collectively have certain attributes and identity, right? And so I'm not only trying to say things about myself, I'm trying to make some wider points about New Zealand. And we've talked about COVID and the economy and justice. My basic thesis is a little bit gloomy, but it can be so much better, is that as I look at New Zealand right now at this minute, I tend to think we're in a fog culturally. We're a bit complacent about a bunch of stuff. We can be quite insular. We're all happy to sort of sit here in our fortress. If we think about COVID, rather than sort of thinking about the future and where we're going to have to be if we want to be reconnected again globally. And I'm not suggesting that's tomorrow. There's a process of vaccinations and other good processes we need to work through at time. So I'm I'm trying to also say some things about what it means to be a Kiwi and where we're at as a country. I don't want to see New Zealand just be kind of Aotearoa, a lifestyle nation. I think we have had great excellence before, whether it's Lord Rutherford splitting the atom whether it's winning the America's Cup or whether it's Rocket Lab. And I've just mentioned, you know, we can think about things culturally and all these other areas as well. What do we need to do as a country? How should we be thinking to achieve some of that greatness and excellence in the future? So mainly, it's some good stories that I hope people will enjoy and identify with. But I also do try to take it a bit deeper and examine our country and its identity as well. Thanks for listening to Pod Defend New Zealand. I found it interesting interviewing someone who gets portrayed in one light in the media, but is a hell of a nice guy in person. To date, him and Helen Clark are the only politicians I've contacted who responded to their own email. Next month, I'll be speaking to Dr. Paul Wood about his experience going to prison at a young age, getting a PhD in prison, and his book, Mental Fitness. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next month. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Defend New Zealand. You can find us on Twitter at NZ underscore pod or Instagram at NZ underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.